to do my best to follow that announcement. I don't know how Ken expects me to after that. Uh, I'm Brian. I'm not bronze medal pickleball player. I'm just your guest preacher who fills in when your pastor plays pickleball or other things. Um, well, uh, good morning, everyone. It's, it's good to be here again with you all this morning. Um, Last time I was here, we were looking at uh, the book of Judges. We looked uh, really at uh, the fourth judge in the book, which is the central um, uh, character in, in the cycle of the judges, which really shows, as I explained that time, the epitome of the situation in Israel. Uh, that Israel uh, is is struggling in this time where they're they're in in the land, they're delivered into the land, they're struggling uh, to know what it means to follow God in the land. And, and we saw Gideon, who is uh, infamous with doubting, uh, that Gideon, who is this judge, he, he, he really doubts in many places on, on what God's doing. And, and we talked about how he is such a relatable character. Well, the book of Judges in and of itself is, is a very relatable book, especially in the time in the age in, in which we live where we live in a place that has been blessed in many ways by Christianity, that has been blessed in many ways by understanding what the implications of God's Word mean for us, not only personally, spiritually, within the church, but to a certain extent within our broader culture. Um, as we think about, you know, Christmas is something that we, we all are familiar with, whether you're in church or not, and, and, and the reality of the day and age we live, that, that this holiday celebrating the birth of Christ is something that in the West we all celebrate. Well, the book of Judges, as we come to the close, talks about this nation, this nation that was created by God, that was formed by Him, that was delivered out of Egypt, and this nation is now struggling to live in the land in obedience. They're really struggling to know what, what does it mean to follow God, to follow His will and follow His way in the land. And we come to the end of the book of Judges today. We're going to look at Judges 17. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I wanted to go all the way through 21, but I couldn't do that for the sake of time. So I will have, after this, a two-hour Sunday school class just right out there uh, where we can discuss, because there's so much rich Old Testament connections in these last five chapters in the book of Judges. But what it really is about is about the struggle that Israel is facing, that the people are facing, to follow God in the land. And it's a struggle that's not unfamiliar to us, because it's a struggle of, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to follow Him? What does it mean for us as, as we live in a confusing time where there are wars, where there are uh, tribal disunities, you know, tri tribal infractions, where there's division within families? You know, these things weren't just created by social media, they existed in our lives long ago. And as we look at the end of Judges, we see this is the struggle of Israel. How do we live for God in the land when these are the things that are presently in front of us? And what I want you all to notice, and I'm going to do something uh, that I don't normally do, but what I want you all to notice is, is how does God factor into this story? There are three times in, in this section that I'm about to read for us where the divine name that is uh, what we see in our uh, Bibles is kept capital L-O-R-D, which is the Hebrew name Yahweh. 
The, the divine name factors in the story. I'm going to read it today as Yahweh, just so you can understand the emphasis that the writer of Judges is placing here in Judges 17. Look with me in God's word. There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the, uh, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ear, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by Yahweh. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh for my hand, for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took the 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he had an ephod and a household of gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there were no kings in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a man from Bethlehem of Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he uh, journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. And I'm going to sojourn where I can find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver and a suit of clothes for your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. In those days, there were no kings in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, and as we are reminded of the weight of your word, of the challenge that it is to follow you in this land, to know your will, to know what it means to abide in you and to rest in your grace to know the struggles in our own hearts as we try to imperfectly follow you. May you be with us. May you lift us up by your word. May you show us what it means to know and receive your grace. And may you direct our lives this day. In your name we pray. Amen. So uh, last week, last weekend in fact, we all observed uh, a convention. For those of us who are enslaved to Western conventions, we all observed uh, Eastern Standard Time as we uh, put our clocks back one hour uh, in order to go back to what is the time that we're actually supposed to be living in, right? Uh, and, and as we did that, what, what you may have noticed uh, is that on your drive home in the evening, for those who work outside the house, uh, that it's now dark when you come home. It's my favorite time of year. There's worse traffic. Uh, you know, as I try to take a left on Holland Road to get to my house, I have to wait now an extra 10 or 15 minutes as the traffic light cycles catch up with the fact that there's heavy traffic now at 5 p.m. 
you know, 5.30, which is now dark, uh, instead of uh, 6.30 in the evening. Uh, and, th- and this is what we all experience in this time of year as, as we adjust our clocks back and, and we now live in darkness on our commute home. And darkness is something that we know as we enter into the season in life, this fall and winter season uh, that is marked by shorter days and, and more darkness. As we wake up in the morning, as we drive home in the evening, we experience this reality. And darkness is disoriented. Darkness makes us sit in traffic when we would not before. Darkness also, if you're hiking and you lose your light at the end of the day and you don't have a flashlight, it's really hard to find your way on the trail. It's hard to know what is the path you're supposed to walk on and what's not the path you're supposed to walk on. And it was in 1964 that two singer-songwriters, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, wrote a song about darkness. Begins, Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. The song, the song is The Sound of Silence, where, where they talk about, in, in the midst of this culture that is an upheaval, where, where there's an assassination of a president, where there are wars, decades and decades of wars, World War II, Vietnam, Korea. We have a whole society that is, you know, in a sense against itself. And in the midst of this, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel write this song about the, the, the reality, the, the blinding reality of what comes on the news and the deafening reality of that. That oftentimes these images that are flashed before our eyes do not add more light and vision and hearing for us, but they actually take away from the overall way that we experience the world. And whether it's the news media or whether it's within our own families or our workplaces, we can kind of relate to that. That's why this song is is the number one folk song of all times. Because we know this reality of darkness. We know what, what happens when we don't see clearly the light, when we, we're trying to grope our way around this world. And that's what the world that Judges chapter 17 introduces us to as we come to the end of this book, as Israel's trying to understand what, what does it mean to live in this land, that they're living really in darkness. And in this darkness, like us, they're trying to find their way. They're trying to find what does it mean to walk in this darkness? What does it mean to live in this world? That oftentimes, as, as we think about all the things that are, are going on, that often confuses us, that often distracts us, that, that oftentimes what, it, what comes on our TV, as I just said, is, is not something that, that gives us more vision, but actually takes away from it. That does not give us more hearing, but actually deafens us. And this is the world into which we enter as we come into Judges 17, a world that you and I know probably fairly well. A world that is oftentimes confusing, a world that is in many ways filled with darkness. And what we see in the midst of this darkness is that Israel oftentimes loses sight of what God is doing. That as they are walking in this world of darkness, that they begin to go on the wrong path. And what we see in this is that the, the writer of Judges is showing us that, they're, that as they go down the wrong way, that they begin to go into false worship. And that this false worship leads to sinful leave, uh, living, which produces sinful actions in their lives. 
That's what we see here in the text. As we look at the progression of what's going on as Israel is thinking, what does it mean to follow God in the land? What does it mean to follow Yahweh? That they begin to falsely worship God or worship other gods. That they begin to live sinfully and they begin to have sinful actions in their life. But what Judges 17 is holding out for us today is that we need God's grace to restore us in that exact way, in those exact places. We need God to restore our worship. We need God to restore our lives, and we need God to restore our actions. We need Him. We need His grace. What Judges 17 is saying to us is is we need God. We need Him in our worship. We need Him in our lives. We need Him in our actions. Because without Him, we're lost. So let's look at those things. We're going to look at them in reverse order. We're going to first look at our practices. We're going to look at our lives, and we're going to look at our worship and see what God has to say in each of those areas. As we begin and enter into this text here this morning, we see that there really is so much off with what goes on here. We're introduced first to this guy, Micah. It says that uh, in in the beginning of the story in verse 2, that Micah, he has a confession to make to his mother. He says, Mom, the the 1,100 pieces of silver that you had, I stole them from you. Now, that's not an insignificant detail. This is, you know, one of my couple of points that I have to make. We'll we'll make it further in, in in the yard out there after the service. But just only a couple chapters before, There was also someone who got 1,100 pieces of silver. It was a lady named Delilah. And she got it for turning in Samson, who was then killed ultimately by the Philistines as he pushed the columns down and and he died, but, uh, you know, and and killed the Philistines in the house. But he was ultimately killed and and brought into captivity because Delilah sold him out for 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, you know, some commentators say that this lady who was. Micah's mom, she's not given a name in the text, maybe Delilah. That's not really the case because they're from the tribe of Ephraim. Delilah was not an Israelite. She was a Philistine. But what the, the, the writer of Judges is making a connection here is saying that where Delilah sold out an Israelite as an outsider, as a Philistine who sold out an Israelite for 1,100 pieces of silver, um, now Micah does that within the tribe of Israel. That here is this insider, this Israelite, who has no problem stealing from his mother over the same exact quantity, the same exact amount of money. And he confesses this to his mom, which, uh, you know, scripturally, as, as we come together and worship weekly, you know, this is a good thing. But it's not really such a good thing for him. And his mom blesses this confession that he makes. His mom uh, blesses the sin. She says, uh, you know, blessed are you as he comes in and confesses that he's just stole the silver. And it, and it really becomes kind of this anti-religious cycle. That here is this action, this stealing, that, that then leads to this confession, that leads to this blessing, that then there is this dedication that they're going to use this money to make an idol honoring Yahweh honoring God. And so they create this idol, and then uh, after they create the idol, Micah creates his own worship system. He ordains his own son to be a priest. And at that point, the writer of Judges pauses, and he says, let me give you a little commentary on what's going on here. He says, in those days, there were no kings in Israel, and everyone did what is right in their own eyes. In other words, we're lacking leadership at this point. 
that here are this, this again, if, as you read the text, all these people seem like nice enough people doing nice enough things. But the writer is saying, there's something really off here. And then we go on and, and we come to this Levite who's also not given a name. The Levite comes along. He's wanting to find a place to live. Micah offers him uh, a priestly garment, an ephod. He stays with Micah, uh, and he is given this compensation of a, a, um, 10 pieces of silver every year, and stays with Micah and becomes a priest. And Micah concludes this whole setting and says, now I'm going to be blessed because now this religion that I've created is now consistent with the religion that God created in the Scriptures, where Levites were supposed to be the priests. He says, I've now, I've now done that. I've paralleled that within my own household. They made this household religion here in the land of Ephraim. And that's what goes on as we come to the beginning of the text, as we look at it in the first uh, pass-through. And, unless we think that, that all of these actions and all of these things that happen here are relegated to people who lived in the ancient Near East, and you know their sins are not like our sins. You know, they're, what they're doing is they're following after these false gods and they're making these idols. You know, these people are so backwards, right? And as we think about what they're doing there, it's really very similar to what we often do. Let's just think a little bit deeper for ourselves. How often do we ourselves confuse God's desires with our own? Or how, how often do we want to conform God's will to our own will? I was just having lunch with a friend this week, and he was saying, you know, it's, it's really hard to know God's will. That's, that's hard, right? I mean, we can all agree. It's hard to really know what, what does God desire of us, or, or, or what, what do we desire? Or where God, where's God leading us? And oftentimes, because of that confusion, what, what, what we want to do is, is we want to say that the thing that, that I want, the thing that we want, is, is the thing that God wants for us. And that's really what Micah's doing here. That's what his mom's doing here. That's what the Levite's doing here. They say, well, the thing that I want, well, you know, it, it seems like this is the thing that God wants. Again, think about how they are invoking God's name at, at different points within this passage. The silver's restored. Oh, bless you, son, in the name of Yahweh. Oh, I'm going to make an idol now in the name of Yahweh. Oh, now Yahweh will bless me because I have a Levite, because I'm doing things in accordance with his word. How often do we do that in our lives? The things that we desire, what, what we want and what we're motivated by, that we say, well, that's obviously what God wants for me. I got in a situation uh, of that with my wife a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, I enjoy preaching, filling in at different churches, as I'm able to do for you all. Uh, and, you know, I, I as, as an individual that has come up more and more recently, is I, I really lack self-awareness. Uh, maybe a newsflash to some of you all here. Uh, but, but what that does in, in my family is that I like to take on a lot of things. I like to take on a lot of things at work. I like to take on a lot of things at home. I like to take on a lot of things outside the home by preaching for different churches. And I was texting my wife and I said, hey, can I preach at this church, Harbor Presbyterian Church down in Elizabeth City? I don't have anything else going on in October. I had a conference. I had a friend coming in. I had another church I was preaching for in October. But I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm freed up. I'm, I'm open. And she was like, yeah, I don't know about that. 
but I really wanted to do it. And so I manipulated the situation. I lied to my wife. It's pretty personal. But I thought, you know, with the things that I want to do, and, and these are things that I enjoy doing, and these are things that we all need, right? I mean, we need to worship at church. And yet how quickly, because of my own desires, and my own intentions, and the things that I wanted, did I conflate God's reality, His will, with my own, and the things that I wanted to do. And that's what's going on here in, in Judges chapter 17. What we, what we see is people who are really at the end of the day, as we said in our confession, they're worshiping themselves. That they're saying, you know, the things that I want, well, well obviously God's in them. Obviously he wants them. And they're not really seeking to know, what, what does it really mean to follow God? What does it really mean to follow after him? And, and what the writer of Judges is, is pulling out for us here in the text is he's saying, we, we need God's grace to restore that. We need God's grace to restore our desires. Because we need to live new lives. We need to have new motivations. We need to have different desires because the things that we want all, oftentimes aren't the right thing. And so that's where we turn to next. How does God re- restore our, our lives? How does he restore the, the, our, our souls? And, and let's look again back at the characters as they're presented to us in the story. We, we, we are given a, a little bit of information as, as we are introduced to each of these characters and kind of what lies behind the actions that they're taking. As we look at Micah, and we look at what, what he does, you know, we're, we're, we're told in, in verse 1, here's this guy, he's from Ephraim, and then it says that he confesses this sin to his mother. Well, why would he steal 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom in the first place? You know, many of the commentators, they, they uh, imagine this whole scenario, you know, because the, Micah obviously is fearful, the reason why he confesses this to his mother, because, you know, this, they live in the same household, the silver is gone, his mother has uttered this curse, and, and it's out of fear of that curse, you know, maybe one day he was walking around, he stubbed his toe, he's like, oh man, it's that curse. You know, so they're sitting down at the dinner table, and he's like, okay, mom, you know, I've got to come clean. I stole the silver. What would motivate a person who is living in the same house as his own mother to steal from her? It's because of his greed. It's because he saw the silver and he's like, I want it for myself. He desired it for his own purposes. And this is what's driving Micah in the story. And then once he's found out in all of this, what does he do? He saves his own skin. He makes this confession to his mom, but only out of fear over the curse that she's uttered over this. And then after all that takes place, then Micah seizes this opportunity to make his name and make his household great. And he, and he makes this whole worship system within his house. And he becomes committed to this idolatry. And, and this isn't something that's new to him. There's actually uh, this word that's used in verse 5 in the text. It says, uh, the man Micah had a shrine. Literally in the Hebrew, it's Beth Elohim, house of gods. And, and that's going to juxtapose something that comes up in, in chapter 18, uh, where it's going to tell us that the real house of God is not in Micah's house, but it's in Shiloh. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. But, but Micah himself 
He had this house of gods, what we have translated as a shrine. He, he was making this competing religion. He was committed to worshiping the things that he desired. He was motivated by greed. He was motivated by self-protection. He was motivated by idolatry, worshiping himself, worshiping the things that he loved and honored. This is who Micah is. And we look at Micah's mom as she's presented to us in the text. And she loves wickedness. Her son comes to her and says that he's stolen from her, breaks the commandment, dishonors his mom, commits thievery, and she says, well, you're blessed. Thank you for you know, doing that. Thank you for stealing from me. You, you are blessed in your actions. And this is very odd, right? I mean, you know, she's, she's honoring something that is clearly a contrary to God's will. But then notice what happens in the text. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no accountant or mathematician here, but the, the, the 1,100 pieces of silver are restored. And she says, I dedicated those to Yahweh. And then she goes and she takes 200 pieces to make the idol. What happened to the other 900? You know, she holds them back for herself. Now, you know, it's weird enough she's making an idol out of this, but the reality is she says, I dedicated this to the God of the universe. All these 1,100 pieces only uses 200 to make this idol. And so she herself is motivated by this greed. She herself is motivated by this desire. And then we come to the Levite, the last character we're introduced to in the story. And the Levite, he comes out of the land of Judah. Now, there's this whole theme going on in the book of Judges where, where Judah is, is the good nation. Judah's going to become the hero of the last five chapters of the book of Judges. We're supposed to look for a king that comes from Judah and not Benjamin. Benjamin are the bad guys. Judah is the good guys. Why? Because David came from Judah. And Saul came from Benjamin. Well, this guy's leaving Judah, and he's coming in to Micah's house. But he doesn't bring goodness with him when he comes. He's not a good guy coming out of Judah, but a bad guy coming out of Judah. And we see that he's a mess just like everyone else in the story. He's saying, you know what, there's nothing for me in Judah. I'm going to go and you know, see what my chances are in another place in Israel. And he winds up and he fry him, and as he winds up there at Micah's house, Micah says, hey, well, maybe I can make you important. Let me give you a priestly garment. Let me pay you. And he's like, oh, hey, someone cares about me? They like my preaching? Whoa, man, I'll stay here as long as they're going to pay me the right amount of money. He's motivated by his own desires of, of wanting uh, to glorify himself of wanting the things that, that um, of, of wanting the recognition that he's receiving. But he's also kind of lazy, right? Because as he, he um, leaves the land of Judah and as he comes and, and Micah says, hey, maybe I can make your life better. Why don't you just stay here? You know what? Who cares about this calling that God has given to the whole tribe of Levite to serve as priests of God? Why don't you just serve my God? And he's like, okay, well, if it pays well, I guess I'll do that. And this is what he does. And what we see about these people and what the, the, the writer of Judges is showing us in chapters 17 and also 18 through 21, what he's showing us is that these people are living totally backwards in the land. And all the things that we described, I mean, how many of the commandments were just broken there? 
How many things are they just totally ignoring where God's at and what's he, what is he doing? And yet this is how they're living in the land. They're living totally contrary to what God had said to them at the end of the book of Joshua. When God says through Joshua as they're about to enter into the land, God says, you know, you guys are going to struggle to follow me here. Joshua says, you know, are you going to commit today to following God? Or are you going to follow other things? Because it's going to be hard if you, if you commit to following God, and, and you're going to stumble. But God's given you this land, and will you follow him in this land? And the people say, no, Joshua, will follow him. He says, no, I, I think you want to think about this for a second. And they say, no, Joshua, we're going to follow him. And that's where that famous line comes. Joshua says, okay, but it's going to be hard. And as for me and my house, we will follow God. And the book of Judges tells a story where it says, you know what? Israel really struggled with that. They're really struggling to follow God. They really find it hard to follow God. In fact, as it says, the refrain in, in, in verse 6 says, uh, there were no kings in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is, again, a connection back to Samson. Because it was Samson who saw the Philistine woman, and he said, I want her. He saw her with his eyes, and he said, I want her. And he tells his dad, you have to go after her. And, that, and that's what the writer of Judges is saying. He's saying, look, now it's not Samson. It's all of Israel saying, the things that I see with my eyes, those are the things I want, and those are the things that I'm going to go after. All the way. This is the way that they're living in the land. I've been watching a lot of, a uh, couple shows recently uh, with my wife on World War II, and something that is striking to me is that, you know, within the last century, and here, Germany, they rose up, and, and you know, out of this national pride and even a, a religious motivation wanted to create this master race and, and wanted to, in doing so, annihilate other people groups from the face of the earth. And, and there was really a, a religious as well as a biological motivation behind the things that they were doing and how quickly they confused the things that they desired, they held dear, with the things that God did. And there weren't a lot of people who were bold enough to call them out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, you may you know, know him, theologian of the German church. He, along with a, you know, a company of pastors, called out, the, called out Hitler in the, in the German government. And they were killed for it. But a lot of people in Germany, you know, they, they were like, yeah, I guess this is what God's doing. I guess you know, the, the Nazis have it right. I mean, good people, Christian people who were, were living in this darkness and yet were confused by the propaganda that was put in front of them. And, and were not discerning to say, you know, well, what, what is God's will really? Like the people in Judges, like we ourselves sometimes, find ourselves distracted by the echo chambers within which we live and we're saying, well, what is God really doing? And, and where is he really at? Because, you know, that noise that comes over social media or, you know, that noise that, that tells me, you know, hey, you've just got to do more stuff. If you do more stuff, people like you more. Those sometimes become the dominating forces in our lives. And what Judges is holding up for us here is to say, no, that, that's, that's not what it means to live 
in the land. That's not what it means to live before God, because what it means to live before God is to follow Him, to follow His Word. And that's hard. Joshua said, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be really, really hard. It's hard to follow His Word. It's hard to do what God says. But he says, that, that's where life is. Life is in following God. Life is in knowing what, what He does and following what He says. And that's what Judges 17 is pointing us to. And, and that's where we come to at the end because we, we come to this reality of what is the essence of this life that is lived before God. And we come back to the refrain that, that really you know, puts a, fr- a frame around this whole section. Where the writer says in verse 6 and again in 18.1, there, there were no kings in Israel. And what we see there is, is this lack of leadership. The people didn't know what, what to do because the examples that they were looking to were, were leading them in the wrong direction. They were not showing them what God's way was, but they were showing them what their way was. And they were saying, this is God's way. And everyone was confused. And they were distracted. As we ourselves often find our times, find ourselves confused and distracted. And what we see is that these people are looking for the wrong things. They're looking for this Levite, you know, well, maybe this Levite in creating this new religious system, maybe that will help. Maybe in having my own competitive house of gods or, or making this idol Yahweh, maybe that will be the way I'll honor him. Instead of coming back to his word and, and seeing what God himself tells us, it means for us to honor him. And what the, the writer of Judges is pointing us to is this reality that, that we need a king who will lead us. A king who will lead us in paths of righteousness and not into our own sinfulness. We need someone who will lead the way for us, who will not only lead the way for us, but who himself will be the way for us. Because what the writer of Judges is pointing to is not David, but to Jesus, who is the true king. The true king of Israel, the one who himself gives his life for us. The one who doesn't just show us what it means to be righteous, that is good, and we read the Gospels and we think, wow, this is what righteousness looks like, but he himself is our righteousness. Because he himself gives his life in our place. He sacrifices himself for the sins that we have committed. And the writer of Judges is saying, that's that's the king you all need. That's the king we're longing for. That's the one who will give us restoration, who will give us the hope, who will lead us into worship, will show us ultimately what it means to follow God, to know God, to follow after him. Recently, my wife and I, we finished uh, the three seasons of Ted Lasso. I did survive all three seasons. I wanted to give up after season two, but I finished. Great show. Um, but it tells a story of, of this guy, Ted Lasso, who's, you know, kind of country boy from the United States who becomes uh, the coach of an English soccer club, Richmond United. And, and Ted goes over there, you know, it's really kind of a joke. Uh, the, the owner, Rebecca, she wants this team to fail after she's been through this terrible divorce. And so she brings over Ted, who only knows how to coach American football, to coach this British soccer club, football club. But as the story progresses, 
And what we begin to see about Ted is that, that he enters into all these relationships and, and he really accepts people for who they are and he, and he really loves them despite that, that they're really flawed people. Because you have like Rebecca, who's the owner, the CEO of the club, and she just can't get over this bad divorce with her ex-husband, Rupert. Or you have Roy Kent, who is this really great soccer player, but he just doesn't trust people. And then you have Jamie Tart, who is, you know, the all-star. But he has these daddy issues. And then you have Nate who is this great soccer coach, but lacks self-confidence. But Ted pursues them, and he loves them. And he shows them the way. And by the time you get to the third season, everyone's like, Ted, we want you to stay here. And he's like, no, i got to go back. i got to go back to the U.S. But you begin to realize, because of his love, because of what he showed to them, that they actually became changed people. That Rebecca started having this confidence that she could do things without Rupert. That Roy could trust people, that Jamie could actually stand on his own two feet, and also Nate could have confidence that he lacked. Because of simply being there for them and loving them. And that's what Jesus does for us, but only more so. Because Jesus gives himself fully and completely to us in order that we can have life, that we can worship him, we can follow him because he loves us. Because of his love, he gave himself for us. And because of his sacrifice for us, he invites us in his life. This life is full of worship. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would show us what it means to follow you in darkness. Show us what the way is, because oftentimes we are lost. And then show us what it means to know and to love Jesus. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love for us through Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.